This episode of Untold Stories is sponsored by BitPay. Stick around for more info about them later in the episode. Hey everyone, I'm Charlie Shrem, and you're listening to Untold Stories. Why am I smiling? I just had David Schwartz on the show, the one of the founders and the CTO of Ripple. We talked about Bitcoin maximalism, Ripple maximalism. We talked about the founding of the XRP Ledger, the dream team of the people involved, why they get involved, and why did they actually start this thing? I mean, Bitcoin was so new and so great. Why start something else in those days? The answer will surprise you. And I was actually pretty... Um, I felt I was pretty open-minded, but not only that, I felt that some of my opinions may have been changed, and I hope that um, if you are anti or against anything in your life, you'll use this as an example to try to take an hour and listen to something that you may not want to. Well, not because you don't want to listen to the show, because you don't want to hear about Ripple or whatever. That's not true. You love the show. Give some love to the sponsors. I'm Charlie Shrem. I'll talk to you guys right in a second. The most important question that I have is, and I think everyone has when they first, you know, follow you on Twitter, is what's the deal with the Joel Katz, David Schwartz situation? <laughs> well, it goes back to the days of bulletin board systems. With for some of your listeners who don't know, this was like before the internet. We had something kind of internet-like, where people you would actually call up by telephone with this thing called a modem. It's the thing that makes that horrible screeching noise that your children have never heard. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And he was setting up a bulletin board system and he asked me if I wanted an account on it. I'm like, yeah. And he said, do you want to use your real name? And I'm like, no. (laughs) I mean, it wasn't really well thought out. I was in high school at the time and I was just like, no, don't use my real name. Well, the TV show Ren and Simpy was popular at that time. And so he asked me what name I wanted. And I said, I don't know, just make something up. And so the first thing that he thought of was Stimpy's real name is Stimson J. Cat. So he made me Stimson J. Cat's. Um, and I started using that name just because that was the name he gave me and I used it on the internet as like a pen name and then after a while I started doing things that were more serious I was writing philosophical essays and and I had kind of an internet persona and I said I can't have this ridiculous name that comes from like an MTV cartoon so I did something very clever I took a play from at least I think it's pretty clever I took a play from 3M's playbook so 3M was originally Minnesota mining and manufacturing and they like that that's a mouthful that name is terrible they needed a sexier name but they didn't want to like change a name to something completely new because they had built up something of a reputation so over time they gradually rebranded to 3M kind of like Federal Express dropped to FedEx and it's like a gradual rebranding so I went from Estrel Katz I mean, from Stimson J. Katz to Stimson Joel Katz, right? J has to stand for something. And then I went from Stimson Joel Katz to S. Joel Katz. Because, you know, if you have a really weird first name, sometimes you you drop that to an initial. initial. Yeah. And then I just dropped the S. My friend has a jewelry store here, and he calls it A. Tiffany and Son. There you go. And there's no A. It's (laughs) because he's in the phone book as A is the first one, and it's Tiffany. Brilliant. That's pretty funny. But I did the opposite of you. When I started, so when I moved down here, my wife and I started kind of like starting little companies and like a coffee shop and we have vacation rentals and we have, our lawyers make fun of us. We have all these little weird local Florida businesses that we just like doing. And the lawyer was like, well, what, what are you, you have to come up with like a holding company name for all this stuff. And I'm like, well, well, I like Suncoast because like the Florida Suncoast is nice. And I like the word portfolio. And I like the word amalgamated. He's like, what the hell is that word? I was like, I just I saw it on a bank one time. And I was like, what is that word? Amalgamate. It's a cool word. No one knows what it means. No one ever knows how to spell it. So I call my company Amalgamated Suncoast Portfolio. So now when I call up the bank, I'm like, hello, this is Mr. Shrem from Amalgamated. And they're like, 
amalgamated. Wow. You know, it's like, that's like all this, <laughs> this is an important guy. We really yeah, need to pay attention to stuff. But it wasn't not, it's not just one thing. It's a whole bunch of things together. Yeah. And this guy is like, oh, wow. It's an amalgamation of a lot of different random things. Uh, but we should let's talk about, you know, let's talk about like like Ripple and the history of everything. Um, and I kind of like starting the show off in a way where I go back and I read through like some of our old emails. So I was going through and I was actually reading a pitch by Jed about Newcoin. And I forgot that before the XRP ledger was, well, I don't, the history I still get confused about, but the XRP ledger and Ripple, it was, it was a new coin at first, or new coin was supposed to be like something that, an asset that people can build on top of, on top of Ripple. I mean, this was 2011, 2012, and I didn't realize yep. how big of a maximalist I was back then. I was reading my emails and I'm like, Bitcoin is the only thing. And, I'm, and now, now I read those and I'm like, I should have been more agnostic. And I should have had more XRP. You know, I have to say, one of the things that surprises me the most is that the thing that attracted me about Bitcoin, and I think a lot of other people too, was that the financial infrastructure was just ancient and it just wasn't working for people. And there was this spirit that like the Bitcoin spirit was like, well, let's just throw that away. Let's just take out a clean sheet of paper and let's just build something new based on like the technologies available to us today. It's a creature of the internet, not a creature of, you know, whatever the financial system grew out of, you know, old tape machines, if even. And, 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 and let's not care about enriching the people who are the current stakeholders. Let's make new stakeholders and let's build a new system and let's build it based on technical merit and it'll be fantastic and people will use it. And I think that's the spirit that built the internet. And the weird thing is fantastically early, as you pointed out, as early as like mid 2011, Bitcoin had hardened to the point where it was hostile to innovation. And people who held Bitcoin were like, don't build something new, build on top of Bitcoin. And I have to say, part of that motivation was the purity of the spirit of it. But I think a lot of it was also that people were invested in Bitcoin and they wanted people to build on the technologies that enrich them, just as banks want you to build on the technologies that enrich them. I, I genuinely believe that that those two things, some of it was was the, the purity of the motivational spirit, this idea of like, this is a new technology that will be inherently liberating and inherently good for people. But I think that was also mixed with the, I'm invested in this technology, build on the technology that like enriches me. This is a good, it's a good topic because I really think that, that I agree with you. I think that back then it was, it was a lot worse. Like, you know, there's that famous post of Vitalik talking about putting Ethereum on Bitcoin and on the Bitcoin blockchain. And there was like so much uh, negative, you know, anger towards that. Did you ever, I don't remember, like, I can't answer. Did, did you ever think about um, back then putting like new coin or XRP ledger on top of a Bitcoin blockchain? Was that like ever a thought? I think I don't not really because I think our, our key motivational spirit was to replace proof of work like that was our, our, our very first idea was to replace proof of work and I think obviously other ideas came in and things evolved and changed but this idea that there, there has to be a better alternative to proof of work um, was 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 so key to who we were and how we thought about things. Um, and, and, and I have to point out, like at that time, most people's view, because I think it's important to frame why this made us so different and why it was so core to who we were. A lot of people's view at that time was that proof of work is what was unique and special about Bitcoin. That was the secret sauce. That was the, 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 the thing that they had that nothing else. Though. What? 
I feel like that's still almost my view in a way that proof of work is something that, you know, for better or for worse, environmental reasons, we could talk about that. But I still feel like proof of work is, is an amazing invention. Yeah, I, I agree. But I would argue that like the thing that made Bit the things that are more core to what made Bitcoin different is is this idea that all the transactions are public. There are no administrative functions and all the transactions rules are public. And because of those properties, that means that anybody who participates in the Bitcoin ecosystem can ensure that every transaction or every state follows the system's rules. Forget about the double spend problem for a minute, because really mining does two things, proof of work. It does the initial distribution of the currency and it solves the double spend problem. But if it, it and those are, and I'm not saying those are not important, but I think like more important is this idea that I can hold Bitcoin and nobody can take it away from me. Like, because in order for someone to make my Bitcoin, someone else's Bitcoin, they have to demonstrate my signature on a transaction that takes it away. And nobody can dispute what a transaction does. They can't say, oh, he didn't pay me one Bitcoin. He paid me 1.1 or he didn't, you know, right. It's like all, the objectivity of the rules and the transfer, we felt it was core to like our thinking at that time that that was what was special about Bitcoin and that proof of work was a replaceable part because the, the initial distribution is, is important, but not as important as like this idea that I can get some and I can have these objective properties, the censorship resistance and so on. Right. And, I, and I don't think the that. proof of, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say like, it's, it's a different way of thinking because a lot of people will think and say that initial distribution is everything and you've seen those people like those people are the ones that won't listen to anything you say only because already something that happened in the past was whatever it was like a distribution i'm not talking about ripple any project or any coin or any anything there you know we close our ears to some of these things so while initial distribution is important you're saying that it's not just that it's it's also its properties it's ease of, of getting people in the hands of as many people as possible and, and it's and it's utility yeah. And I'll give you my strongest argument against the initial distribution is important view, but I just want to point out that I don't necessarily fully believe this. This is my strongest argument against it. And I think you should temper the arguments against it and the arguments for it, because the truth is, is sort of in the middle, yeah, but like, as a, you know, understand what I'm saying. This is like, this is a, an, a, an overcorrection in the argument. Um, the normal rule is that when somebody creates something, they're entitled to as much value as they can get out of it. And other people who find it useful sort of can adopt it on whatever terms the people who sort of create it and produce it like like decide for them. And Satoshi started mining early and he got an outsized number of Bitcoin. He may or may not be able to transfer them, but that is not unfair in any way because he built the system and he got to choose the, choose the rules. And if we didn't like the rules that Satoshi chose, which some people don't, system. they can build their own system. Right. And they can build their own systems with different rules. The amazing thing about blockchains is that you can clone any one of them in minutes and you can have a new Bitcoin or new XRP or a new Ethereum. And then it's on you to sort of attract people to your system. But the normal rule is that the people who create the system like get the sort of right to do that. And just as I wouldn't be mad that Satoshi started, like I wish I was mining when Satoshi was mining, but Satoshi got in early and took a risk. And when Satoshi was mining, Bitcoins were literally worth zero. Like he was taking a hundred percent risk. And, and if you said, what's the probability? It was just him. Right. And if you said, what's the probability that like this will make him a billionaire? <laughs> you would have, everyone would have laughed. It's ridiculous. Like, why didn't, why didn't you buy XRP in the early days? Because you didn't think that it would increase in value. Like, and, 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 and you were right. These things are necessarily improbable, right? If we all knew for sure that anything, any asset was going to double in value over the next year, we'd all buy it and we'd all like have twice the 
the net worth next year. That's not how it works. So these people took a risk. When Ripple got Ripple's XRP as a gift from the creators of the XRP ledger, it was literally worthless. And it was on uh, the, the, the members of the community to like promote this, to like, to like, you know, build the system and, and like introduce people to it. I know, I know it was because um, uh, when I was running BitInstant, uh, Jed, and then after Chris was trying to get me to, and I came to your office a few times to get BitInstant to uh, adopt, you know, its next coin other than Bitcoin and to allow for people to buy and sell it. And I remember, and, and I'm embarrassed by this, but I, I like talking about it. I remember saying to myself, like, yeah, I'm agnostic to the investors, but then saying to myself, like, yeah, Bitcoin's the only thing. And I feel really stupid because it, it wasn't until like 2015 that I realized that we have to be able to, we can't be in it. If we only, if I, if I become a maximalist, I do the same thing that almost the governments do in terms of like pushing out uh, competitors and pushing out the ability to have better projects and people working together and all these different things. I'd take like a hard look at myself, I think. Yeah, I, and I, I think like if we're going, if this whole experiment is going to succeed, if, there, if that spirit is still there about remaking the financial system and like repeating the revolutions of like the shipping container and the internet, and like if this is going to be that next revolution in financial systems and payments, then I think there has to be a variety of products and services. There has to be innovation. If you think Bitcoin is like the end of innovation, everybody in history who's thought that like something was the end of innovation, it's just a matter of time before for like they're proven wrong. We don't, we don't drive a Model T, right? Like the Model T was yeah. the one that made it, it could have made people say cars are going to like be the new thing, but I don't drive a Model T. And we have, you know, uh, tanker trucks that carry fuel and we have sports cars and, you know, we have trucks that carry goods around, like they're specialized for particular applications. And I think it, it's, it's kind of crazy to think that we're all going to be using the same system that is the first decentralized system ever made. I, I think that's unrealistic. I think there's going to have to be an ecosystem. How did you how did you get into the industry and like how how has the ledger kind of evolved over the past seven eight years? Oh uh, wow, yeah, <laughs> it's hard to look back over that time period and think the yeah, way things change. You know, the good thing about this show is it's it's not like a specific show. This is like education and entertainment at the same time. So no one holds anyone to like things. It's you know I say a lot of stupid shit, but um, I think the reason a lot of people like this show is because it allows everyone to attach faces, voices, and names to the projects that they're, you know, involved in and they love and, and they really like to hear, you know, for better or for worse. Um, and so, so yeah, that's, that's where, that's, and this is actually today, the day we're recording, I'm celebrating my 100th episode. Today's episode 100 day. Oh, cool. Um, enough, I'm very excited about that. Super so, cool. Um, so, I'll tell you what originally attracted me to Bitcoin was the, the philosophical angle. Um, this idea of money as a tool of sort of repression and control and doing something about that. And um, I saw parallels to the internet and the use of information as a tool of repression and control. You know, at one time, people in North Korea thought that Kim Jong-il was like a respected intellectual in the West and a snappy dresser. And like they, because they, all really? they could hear... 
Yeah, because that, all they could hear is what North Korean state media was telling them. And I think one of the things that brought down the Berlin Wall was this idea that people in East Berlin wanted CD players and blue jeans and all the cool things that people in West Berlin had because West Berlin was trading with the Western world and East Berlin wasn't. I think information has been a powerful tool of liberation. And I think the internet in the way it's democratized information, it has gone back on that a little bit recently, but I think there was a time when it drastically democratized information and that was a tool of liberation. And I think control of money is a tool of control as well. Like if the government can control how you spend your money and they can inflate the currency to start wars and they have these tools, they can tell when you go to a bookstore and then they can go to the bookstore and try to figure out what books you buy. Like controlling people's movement of money is a tool of oppressive control for oppressive regimes. Exactly. Exactly. And I think the internet weakened their control over information and money seemed like the next thing. And if you've read, I I wrote a series of articles about the the war on cash, talking about how governments, even in the Western world, use their ability to control money as a powerful tool of control. And the important thing is that they do it in ways that prevent people from like having due process rights. So for Uh, my man, you know, I'm going with this example, like, you know, if you if you all of a sudden the IRS says you owe 50 grand in taxes your passport's gone boom you can't leave the country yeah and or anything in that yeah and if a far if a middle eastern government declares you a terrorist because you spoke out against them you suddenly can't open a bank account like anywhere in the united states and this is the this is the important thing if the government wants to punish you for being a terrorist they have to like try you for some sort of crime or they have to like file a civil lawsuit against you and you get to confront witnesses and you get to hear the charges against you. But if every bank refuses to do business with you because of legal risk, you ha- there's no, there's no appeal process. There's no, there's no way, there's no way that you can like do anything about that. And if you can't open a bank account, I mean, there's, there's stores that are cash only, like there's places where you can't get a cup of coffee without a bank account. And, and that was what, what motivated me. Um, I'm very sympathetic to regulators, legitimate concerns with things like, you know, radicalizing terrorists and financing terrorism and, um, and, and all, and, and money laundering and drug money and everything. And I, and I just point out for people who might be younger, who didn't live through the internet revolution, there were those same concerns about information. Were there the really? internet? What were there really? Yeah, there was a significant concern that the internet would set back the battle against uh, child sex ex- sexual exploitation, and and um, there was concern that the internet was used to radicalize terrorists. There was the war over. Inc- Sorry, it's all good. There was a war over encryption where the government tried to suppress encryption for fear that criminals would be able to use encryption in the internet to coordinate their crimes. And would- <laughs> I remember that. Sorry, my dogs are gone. Let me give them a minute to give them a second to calm down. While you're not talking, if you let them bark while you're not talking, maybe the editor can like edit their voices out because he can like get them as room noise or something. What is their problem? They're very good. I think they've stopped. Yeah. All right, we'll try to try to try again. No, no worries. Um, Do you remember what you were talking about? Yeah. Yes, I know exactly where I was. I always forget. 
so a lot of people may not remember this or maybe or may not have lived through it and so wouldn't be able to remember it but there was a political battle over the internet over encryption over flow of information across borders there was concern that the internet would set back the battle against child sexual abuse because people could exchange child pornography in ways that might be untraceable there was a concern that the internet would be used to radicalize terrorists um, and governments basically found ways to address their legitimate concerns with the existence of the internet. They tried to push back against the internet. There are countries that still to this day heavily restrict internet use. Um, and there, there was an attempt in the United States to prohibit the export of encryption technology. But essentially, those battles were all lost. And, the, and I think we all won as a result of that. The Internet has been a tremendously powerful force that gives you know, millions of people around the world, hundreds of millions, access to the vast majority of human knowledge at their fingertips. And I think that, that we're going to, so, to some extent, repeat that story with the financial system. We are going to repeat that story with the financial system. And that sounds like that's kind of why you got involved in the industry is that you're like drawing all these parallels one to the other. Um, and the second part of my question was, you know, how is, how is the ledger since involved? And you're probably wondering why I like threw that question in there, but I guess it's because, you know, um, when, when this industry got started almost 10 years, ago, I'm just gonna say a decade ago for the ease of use, we, you, me, no one knew what was going on. We didn't really, we had all these ideas, all these thoughts, and they were constantly being fluid and constantly evolving. And messaging was different and, and ideas and thoughts, um, even the way I ran my companies, the way I ran myself, um, those were always changing. So I guess to go back to the question is like, how has it evolved or changed? And do you, is, is Ripple and the, le and I want to, I want to have like three different things. I want to have the XRP ledger. I want to have ripple as a company and then i want to talk about xrp as a token and i'd love if you can actually like for the sake of like all the stupid people on twitter just explain the difference between the three but i guess i want to know like for better or for worse how is it different than what you wanted it to be back in 2012. Yeah, that's a it's a tough question because it was so hard to know back then you know, we didn't have the kind of perspective that you get looking back years later. What what we want what we wanted was we wanted everybody to have access to a financial system that worked for them. We wanted people to be able to hold the asset that worked for them. I think one of the biggest things was that people effectively have no choice but to hold their national currency. Uh, if you're wealthy and if you're in some countries that have really good financial systems, it is possible to like go to effort to hold other currencies. But like one of the visions was this idea that I'm a gold bug. I like gold, I'm, but, but I'm not going to find someone who's going to pay me in gold and I'm not going to find a grocery store that's going to take gold. Wouldn't it be awesome if my, biz, my employer could pay me and I just got gold? And I could go to the grocery store and I, maybe they price in whatever national currency they want to price in, but, um, but I sort of pay with gold. Um, the idea, and, and this is going to sound crazy, this idea actually started with Ryan Fugger and it's his work that gave us the name Ripple for the company. Uh, his idea was that money solved a problem in a crude way that we could actually now solve in a better way. So Fugger's idea was that the reason that we needed money is because if I was in Denver at a layover at an airport and I wanted a cup of coffee, there's no way that the like Starbucks could know if I was like generally a helpful person or if I was going to every Starbucks in the world and asking for a cup of coffee. That's how I understood Ripple in the beginning with social credit. 
Exactly. And so the, his vision was this idea that we didn't need a government to issue money. We could just sort of keep accounts between people so that we could sort of like, I do a favor for you and then you owe me one. And that sort of that acts as a acts as a form of currency. And we built that into the XRP ledger. And it's kind of sad that that still seems like either way ahead of its time. Or I still think that that's the coolest thing that we built. It is. And it's and it's so funny. And I love that I end up like pushing us into these into these like conversational spaces is that i remember that that's what originally turned me off like that's what i was against because here i am in this bitcoin world talking about fractional banking is bad and you know like creating money out of thin air or whatever not money out of thin air but like um and well actually it is kind of creating money out of thin air. yeah here we go and we ha- and, and and i incorrectly understood it as basically like ripple is allowing people to like issue their own debt and uh, and I, in, in, in that, I remember now, like you're, you're, you're creating memories. Like that was one of the first things that I was saying, whoa, like what, what is going on here? This is very against what originally I stand for, which is like large amounts of debt and government printing is not a good thing. The weird thing is the most successful example of that today, arguably is Tether. True like, story, right? That's basically what Tether is, right? <laughs> so... And that has not caught on. I still think that that's incredibly cool, but I'm also sympathetic to the idea that like you could wind up building a system where that entire system could just implode because there could be like, like Tether could implode. Like theoretically, Tether is high risk system because it could implode. It's been stable for a very long time. We can argue about what the probability is, but it's dangerous, right? And uh, the thesis was that if you built a system that allowed anybody to have access to that, then people would would have to figure out like how to manage their own finances. It's almost like the bad side of be your own bank it's like be your own bank meaning oh you have to assess credit risk and you have to like worry about systemic risk and you have to you know it's almost the bad side but i still hope i still think that that's a great vision i think one day we may be able to build the tools to allow people to to manage that i think people if people are going to have access to these powerful tools like cryptocurrencies and especially if things like decentralized finance catch on then people will need sophisticated tools to interact with those systems because they're sophisticated systems the solution can't be everybody has to become a financial expert and understanding all the systems that they're working with, right? Like computers did not get mass adoption when you had to be a computer expert to use a computer. Automobiles didn't get mass adoption when you had to be a car expert and be your own mechanic to have a car. So if you think DeFi is going to take over the world and, and ordinary people are going to access these complex derivatives and credit systems and lending, then there's just going to have to be tools that make that easy for them to use. So you just have to sort of imagine that those tools are going to exist in the future. Otherwise, that's just not going to happen. You, you just said that, that not everyone has to become a financial institution. Um, but what's great is that what you've been doing is through a back-end way, enabling anyone to become their own financial financial institution. And what I mean, what I mean by that is you guys were the first company really to go out to banks, to financial institutions, to real companies, and to hedge funds and talk about cryptocurrency. Like, do you remember? I remember sitting in like your office and like just working out of my laptop and I was a kid, I was no, you know, and I was the adult in the room. So here we are, like, what does that say about our industry at the time? You guys were the first ones to go out there, one of the first ones to go out there and like pitch the idea of cryptocurrency to uh, basically the legacy financial system. So it's understandable that you've had to like, like explain crypto to them on their terms. like. Were there any types of conversations that you wouldn't have with them? Like, would you just not explain mining and things like that because you knew that was just going to go over everyone's head? 
Well, in the early days, it was very hard to have those conversations. And I think part of the early in 2014, 2015, well, let me back up a tiny bit. So Ripple's original strategy was everybody used the XRP ledger for everything. Yeah. That was like the strategy when you don't have a strategy. That was Everyone the Bitcoin strategy. Swift, essentially. Right. Just like the Bitcoin strategy was everybody used Bitcoin for everything. Like you don't need anything else to use Bitcoin for everything. Um, and and that's, that's when you don't have a good strategy. And then Ripple kind of evolved the Ripple net strategy of this idea that like international payments and remittances were broken. Let's try to find product market fit using um, digital assets or some sort of a, a new, you know, new system that would target um, enterprise payments. And we pursued that strategy and we would go to financial institutions and we kind of didn't talk much about digital assets at the time because they weren't receptive. But we did discover something right around that time, probably around 2016, 2017, when it was just starting to become okay and financial institutions were starting to think, do we need a digital asset strategy? Like, do we have to say something about this? Like people are asking us, you know, is Bitcoin a threat to your business? Do you have a strategy? And right around that time, we discovered something that it was incredibly surprising to me. Um, you can make an argument to people that like big, the financial system is biased in favor of the big banks and they run everything and they can make money and nobody else can like get a fair shake from the system. You can make that kind of argument. The weird thing is that argument resonates with banks. Like if you're, if you're one of the very largest banks in the world, then that argument's not going to resonate with you. You would love technology to never change. I mean, you're going to say that you're pro technology and that you're innovative, but let's be honest. If you're one of the top 10 banks in the world, you would prefer to push stop on innovation and keep everything right the way it is because you're on top of the world, but you don't have to go down very far to find banks that want more business and that want to grow and want to innovate. And they are very receptive to this idea that like, it's the people who it's their larger competitors that are, that are like trying to prevent innovation who want to push pause. And the amazing thing is like one of the criticisms that you'll hear about the XRP ledger is like, oh, it's a, you know, it's a bank chain. It's built to be a bank chain. The paradoxical thing is people think that a bank chain means centralized control, but that's not true because imagine if you're a bank, but you're not one of the top 10 banks in the world. And I go to you and I say, listen, Mr. You know, large mid-sized bank, you are not going to run the financial system. It's the large, if, 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 if banks are running the financial system, it's not going to be you. It's going to be the bigger banks. You have two choices. You can transact on a system that's run by your largest competitors, or you can transact on a system that's decentralized and nobody can control it. Your call. What are they going to pick? And the answer is, yeah. Over time, what they realized is that like censorship resistance and decentralization actually is, is, is something that they want because they're pressured by their larger competitors. And so if they want to be competitive in the space, like a system that's decentralized is actually beneficial to them. Um, and, and we don't see a lot of that because we're, we don't see the communication between banks. So here's the other weird thing. Banks, unless they're payment banks or payment specialists, they don't like payment. They don't make a lot of money on it. They make money on the and their customers. Right. And their customers complain a lot about it, right? Where's my payment? My payment didn't go through. The fees are super high. And of course, the bank isn't keeping those fees. They're paying those fees to the larger banks that are moving the money. And so what banks did for a while is they're like, you know what? We don't make money on payments. Our customers get upset when we don't do payments well. They're very expensive. So what they did is like, you know what? We just won't be that great at payments. We'll just be, you know, okay at payments. The problem is... If you want, if you, if a bank sucks at payments, why would I keep my money there? Why would I do business with them? And if I'm not doing business with a bank, if you wanted a loan, 
and you don't have an account at a local bank, would you walk into a local bank to talk about a loan? Of course not. You would go online to like lending specialists, yeah. right? And so what banks started to realize is that if they didn't get good at payments, they wouldn't have any customers. They wouldn't have any assets under management. They wouldn't get any loans. And so banks realized, not the very top tier banks, but just a little bit below that they really needed to be innovators. They needed something new. They needed better payments. And so Ripple found that product market fit between a new technology and, uh, and something that was incredibly valuable to institutions. And how did those institutions take it in the early days? And how do they take it now? Well, in the early days, um, this was more of a promise than something we could actually deliver. In other words, we, you know what I mean? Like we picked yeah. up, up on this as something that banks needed. And so we used a sort of one-two punch in our, in our sales and in our communications with them. So, so first of all, you have to have something that someone needs today. No one's going to buy something purely for future need. Now, it's true. There were some banks that just want a press release. They just want like... Um, we want to seem innovative. We want to seem like we have a blockchain strategy. And you could get a deal with them that you do a press release and then would never go anywhere. And if you have nothing, that's better than nothing, right? Like if you say we sell software to banks and you have zero banks, that, that's embarrassing. But if you want to actually grow a network, you need to solve someone's problem today so that they're motivated to go beyond the press release. They're motivated to build the system, integrate it, get it working, keep it live. So you have to have something that you can deliver immediately. But, but also when you're an, a, a young company that isn't ready to deliver everything that your technology can deliver, you also want to have that future promise. You also want to say, look, you guys have this very specific problem and we have a vision for how we can build something over time that will solve that problem. And that's kind of the execution that we're doing now. Like we brought on those customers who had an immediate need that we could solve um, with, with what the technology could deliver at the time. And then we're working on building into that future vision where the, where the network is um, robust enough and broad enough that it can provide a sort of general solution to their payment problems. And so that's kind of where Ripple, the company is today. And that's stage of pivoting from proof of concept to like enough uh, scale. I'll give you a bit of an analogy. Like you might get internet access for some specific reason. Like you might really like email. You get internet access for email. But once you have internet access, there's so much on there that you're just going to start using it for other things and things that you would never have imagined. And then at some point you'll need something and you'll go to the internet and there it will be. And it's not that you got the internet to solve that problem. It's just you had a problem. You checked if the internet could solve it and it could. And so that's that kind of pivot to going from something that solves a very specific problem to something that has such a broad range of capabilities that you try it first to see if it can solve your problem. And most of the time it can. Okay, come on. This is so cool. This is the new BitPay card that I have in my hand. And I'm so excited to be finally having the new one that just came out. Now, guys, I've been using the BitPay card since 2016. Yeah, you heard that right. Way before I started Untold Stories way before BitPay became a sponsor of mine. I've been using this card and it literally became a way for me to have a bank account uh, for many, many years as, as a lot of people in crypto need banking, need better banking. The BitPay card is chock full of the coolest features. It's got contactless pay, uh, better rates and limits, no fees to convert from Bitcoin right onto the card, added in chip security. I mean, it's sexy. It looks good. Unlike other cards, it's so easy to get. Just download the BitPay app on your phone, click the card icon, and you can do it right there. If you use the promo code CHARLIEJUNE20, your card is free. Remember, CHARLIEJUNE20. 
It's in the show notes. You can get a free card. So literally, just from listening to my show today, and make sure you actually listen, you could get a free card just by entering that code. So download the BitPay app, get the coolest card on the market, the best card on the market. I've been using it for over four years now. I know there are so many cards out there, but the BitPay brand is the oldest and longest running Bitcoin company in the world. I mean, that's who issues this card. This is the card you want to have. Remember, Charlie, June 20, download the BitPay app on iOS or Android to sign up for the new card. You're going to freaking love it. How many banks are on board now? And are you able to then go and, and kind of explain the differences between the different terms that we talked about? Um, so I always have to check to see what information we can dis- what information oh, we can disclose. Sorry, um, it was like so. Just say there's a, there's a lot. There's a lot. Do you have a lot yeah. There's of- over there's over three hundred financial institutions in various stages of um, of deployment, and that's where you. And the, I think I'll give you another interesting statistic. Show the extent of going from proof of concept to now, you have a robust you know, ecosystem of banks and financial institutions. That was the purpose. Right. And, and one of the key pivots on that for us was Swell. So if your listeners don't know what Swell is, Swell is a con- uh, like a conference that Ripple started to allow our customers to kind of talk to each other and potential customers. And one of the key pivots for Swell was when we realized that we had customers who were on our network who just weren't exchanging, you know, like who just didn't know that they were there. So there might be some customer who had some capability to clear funds in some place. And there was another customer who just didn't know that that was a available on the network. And so we started uh, sort of matchmaking between our customers. I'm not allowed to call it Tinder for banks, so I won't do that. But um, no, the basic no, no, idea of what... I remember hearing about this and I'm like, wait, a crypto company is running a banking conference? What? Yeah. Isn't that, isn't that, isn't that crazy? It's great. It's awesome. I mean, like, it's just that. It shows where we are today. Well, especially for for uh, payment companies like um, non-bank payment companies, it's tremendously valuable for them because many of them have capabilities that are beyond what banks have. Like they've built their own networks. Um, Earthport's a good example. Like they've built a network that has fantastic payment capabilities, but they need they need ways for customers to connect to them. They need standardization of the agreement process that they don't have to negotiate these complex contracts and um, and and technical standards for the exchange of information. And once you have a customer who's on RippleNet, like all of that stuff's already done. So if you have two, two RippleNet customers who have some ability, you know, one of them has some financial service that the other one wants, that process can be tremendously streamlined. And so that becomes um, part of the pitch. So it's like, when we talk to a financial institution or bank, it's like, here's what RippleNet can do for you today. Here's where RippleNet is going in the future and how it can provide these you know, services for you that we're building out. But also, we will sort of be your marketing department. If you have some financial service that you can provide, let's say you can clear shekels into Israel. We'll go to our other customers and ask them, like, who needs to clear shekels into Israel? And we'll look for people who need to clear shekels into Israel to join RippleNet to become your customers. We'll act as sort of an adjunct to your sales capability because we're talking to banks and asking them what problems they have. So it, it kind of grew into this sort of matchmaking, building technology, and infrastructure. You literally, yeah. that you're, what you're ta- describing is just a whole, like, capital and credit markets. I mean, it's a whole other ecosystem. It's, these institutions have people to talk to each other, um, and it's insane. It's great. So day one, it was like, wouldn't you like to be part of something that's new and sexy? And then day two, it's like, wouldn't you like to have an alternative to Swift? Maybe it's worse. Maybe it doesn't even work very well, but it's an alternative to Swift, so at least Swift can't push on you. And then it's like we have then it, but then it grows into like this. 
multiple corridors solving real world problems. And that's kind of like a, that's kind of a, 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 like that inflection point in the curve. And, and it's, it's exciting to see like when, when more of our customers are talking to more than one customer than like are talking to one customer. They're talking about like crypto and they're talking about Ripple and they're talking about all these different things and XRP and, um, no, that's really great. I, I'm going to try to attend, you know, after COVID that it's next conference because it just sounds like a great place um, to be. So going back to, you know, as we're progressing through these years, so now <clears throat> these years, it's like 2015, 2016, and the company's growing and, and you're, you know, you're talking to all these institutions and, and then 2017 comes and all of a sudden you guys are faced with this huge amount of attention. Uh, I think I forget XRP as a token went up to like dollar two. I forget exactly what happened. And things got kind of crazy in the whole crypto industry. Um, are you, were you frustrated at the time that the message was being diluted, that the message that the conversations that you and I are having now, people weren't talking about that. They were just talking about like the price of XRP. Did that frustrate you at the time? I think there was a lot of focus on the price. I mean, I, I held Bitcoin and XRP, so it's hard to get upset about something that's, you know, enriching you personally. I mean, obviously, but I did notice that people got very obsessed about the price and it did detract from this idea of building. And I think one of the nice things about it was that we could at first, obviously, the price was just incredibly distracting. I think everybody was just checking the price every five minutes during like certain parts of the bull run and like, you know, uh, but I think after a while, um, even something that even something that can suck all the oxygen out of the room after a month or so, it just becomes just another thing and you just yeah. accept it as normal and you get back to like what you're doing. And I think to some extent that helped draw attention away from the things that didn't need necessarily need attention and allowed people to focus on building. And then I think now we've had a long kind of time when the prices have just been moving fairly flat and, you know, occasionally dropping and sliding. And obviously we had the drop off after that. And I think that also, like, my attitude has been, like, oh, good, people are going to focus on that, and that allows us to, like, go back to building. I'm really interested in the technology. A lot of people, so I, like, you'll talk to, like, CZ from Binance, and he'll say he likes bear markets better because it's when he can focus. But you're telling me that when everyone's focused on the bull markets and the price, you're sitting there and you're working away. That's actually I do that either way. Yeah. I, I do that either way, right? Like, I... I I've spent my time focusing on the price and, and watching it. And I've reached the point where like, now I, I, I'm kind of, I'm kind of immune to it and I'm kind of trying to focus on building the technology. I think it would be helpful if more people kind of felt that way and were less obsessed about the price, just because um, I think that's part of what creates some of the animosity in the community and some of the sort of vitriol. I think that's part of what makes the community not so great at times, I think, yeah. is people are just really concerned about their pocketbook. So one thing, like, if you think Bitcoin is the greatest thing, or you think Ethereum is the greatest thing, you think XRP is the greatest thing, you're probably going to hold some of that. And so if I tell you that Bitcoin is not so great or Ethereum is not so great, or XRP is not so great. I'm not just having an intellectual argument with you. Like if I'm right, I'm threatening your pocketbook. And so that creates some of that animosity yeah. in the community that I think is very, I think it's harm. I think it's harmful. Why and I, 2017, was it, why I guess did Ripple get the brunt of that? I don't, I never understood why. I never understood why other coins and tokens and products didn't get the brunt of that. You know, I, 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 I don't really know. I can give you a lot of partial explanations, any one of which could be right, but I don't know. I think one of it was that we were among the first to say that 
like that Bitcoin was not perfect. Like we were among the first to say that like there could be an alternative to Bitcoin, that Bitcoin wasn't the end of uh, innovation. I don't know that that's the reason. I, I think that's a factor. I think another factor is that we were kind of working within the system. We were a traditional, Ripple was a traditional Silicon Valley company. Um, we had investors. We didn't have an ICO. We don't have mining. Like we beat a different path from what other people did. But I don't know if that's, I don't know. I don't know if that's the reason. It, I, honestly, yeah, I'm my, kind my of puzzled thought, by it. My thought on this is basically when you put someone in a the corner, they're going to, you know, when you put a rat, you know, it's like the, 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 you ever see the movie Fast and the Furious when the guy put the rat on the guy's body with the bucket and eventually the rat has nowhere else to go. So he eats through the skin kind of like that. You had Bitcoin and then you didn't really have a theory. You didn't have anything else. So because Ripple was the other one, it just got the brunt of that. And then you had all of these people that were part of the original Ripple community and XRP community, you know, what eventually became the XRP community that didn't understand and felt pushed into a corner for no, for no reason that they understood. And because of that, there was this like, uh, you have to be defensive, right? If someone's coming at you, what are you going to do? And I felt that wasn't fair, but at the same time, you know, I'm definitely responsible. I'm, I'm guilty of that. I'm definitely on there on Twitter and teasing Ripple people all the time. And, um, you know, so I'm definitely guilty of that. But I think that's kind of what happened. Yeah, and I think that creates a little bit of a bunker mentality. Like when you feel like bunker you're being mentality. unjustly attacked, yeah, it's, and it can become a feedback loop. You feel like you're being unjustly attacked. And so you sort of lash out unreasonably and then of course someone can point to that and say you see these people are unreasonable that's why they're awful and it kind of gets into this sort of escalating circle and and i i have tried to kind of calm that down as much as i can and i will say that there are people on on you know uh, with with all, on all different sides of this who have behaved very badly and the people who have behaved well on all sides and i i have tried to push the view that like the internet is a thriving ecosystem because there's so many things. It's like it gives you access to so much and you can find the things that work for you and that we can build a financial system that's like a financial internet that's that where the infrastructure itself is not biased. The internet doesn't favor Google. The internet doesn't favor Twitter. The internet itself is kind of unbiased. What? No, <laughs> I, was, I was finishing your sentence. I was like, people favor these things. So, when, so you, can't, right. you can't come at someone or something for its success, and, and I'm talking to myself here because I'm guilty of these things. You can't go after someone for their success uh, out of you know some like jealousy or whatever. That's just not really a fair thing to do. Um, and I think that that's narr that that narrative has, like you said, like sometimes, like eventually they. Uh, you said earlier, you said here's the narrative or whatever, and then eventually just is a thing. It's like we move on, you know. So now that's but, moved, you know. Now that's moved on. Um, let me say one thing in your defense, though. Please. Um, <laughs> I know it's funny. It's kind of this reversal of these. Let me say one thing in your defense. Um, and in the defense of other people who have attacked Ripple unjustly, in their defense, there are a lot of scams in this space. I mean, outright, flat out scams. Yeah. And it can be very hard to tell what's an outright scam and what's not. And I could easily see how if you didn't put in an enormous amount of time understanding what Ripple is, you could think that it was one of those scams. So you could think the XRP ledger was a scam. And and people say, do your own research. But like, have you have you tried to do your own research? Like, I'll give you an example. I know this space very well. When the Bitcoin, Bitcoin cash split started to happen, I did some my own research. I spent an entire day reading like all sides of the issue to try to figure out what was going on. And I came out probably more confused than I started. Oh, yeah. So like I'm confused about scaling. 
Right. So, so saying do your own research is, 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 is not very helpful. It's, it's very difficult. Most people can't do it. And then, and saying, well, you know, ignore something that might be an outright scam. Like there are outright scams that are robbing people of money. And, and if you're a Bitcoin maximalist, like those scams are hurting Bitcoin because, you know, anything bad about the industry is bad for Bitcoin. And so I am sympathetic to people who feel like they need to call out scams and who will sometimes, um, who will sometimes yeah. call out a scams things that aren't scams because it's not easy to tell. So I'm 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 simp- I'm more sympathetic perhaps than I should be uh, to people who have no, unjustly that's a, attacked. Us. That's a very that's a very good point. That's a very good point. And a lot of things are very complicated to explain. Um, and I think yeah. it's because that all these things were um, were increasing in value so much. I remember having like a guy. I remember like a guy that I was in jail with just called me out of the blue and he's like. I want to buy Bitcoin in Ripple. And I just remember saying to myself, out of, out of all the things, or Bitcoin XRP, and I said, of all the things, like, just why that? And he said, well, Bitcoin is great, and, and, and XRP is the, next, is the next Bitcoin. And I said, well, I don't even understand what that means. What is the next? So it was the fact that people weren't even willing to give their own, do their own research. And then uh, that got me so nervous, because at least with Bitcoin, um, at least with Bitcoin, if, like, because I'm so invested in it, that if it fails, then at least like I fail with that person. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, doing your own research is just hard. Yeah. It's, it, it's un- like everybody says, do your own research. It, how many people can't, I mean, if I couldn't, if I couldn't on several issues where I was, not, you know, things that I'm very deeply personally involved with, obviously it's easier for me to figure out what's going on. But like with things that I don't have a personal connection to, it's almost impossible to figure out like, where's the real innovation? Where is the, where's the real you know work happening? Yeah. What's real and what's completely fake. You'll see in this industry, a lot of press releases with zero follow-up. Like you'll see this press release yeah. of like this cryptocurrency is working with this major company on this big thing. And then there's literally nothing like a year can go by and there's literally wow. nothing heard about that. And, and to be fair, like when, when we do a press release, it's fair for people to say like, well, okay, it's a press release. Like, yes, you got this other financial institution to sign on to press release, but maybe all the financial institution wanted was a press release because sometimes that is all they want. So, so that, that kind of criticism is fair. And you do your own research Well, you find a press release, like, and it says they're building something. Like, yeah, what do you, how skeptical? That's a good point. Yeah. It's, it's, hard, it's, it's a hard industry to understand what's going on. So I'm mm-hmm. sympathetic to people who get it wrong. And, I'm, and I hope that people will be sympathetic with me when I get it wrong because I have the same problem. Like I, I, yeah. outside of the people who I interact with on a regular basis very directly, it's hard for me to figure out what's going on. How's, um, is, the, is the dream team still there? Is Arthur still there? Arthur's been working mostly on PolySign, his new company, which I'm also an investor, advisor, and board member of, yeah, which is – Tell them. <laughs> yeah. They're working on institutional custody. Arthur still consults for Ripple. Um, a lot of the original team is, it has, has minimized the amount of time they spend with the company. Um, it's kind of sad. I, I, I think one big factor, though, is that like that. Ripple is... A, and they yeah. start their own amazing things and they're all coming from Ripple. You know what I mean? Like it's... Yeah. I don't see it well, and I love that. I love that there's people who understand us very, very deeply who are in these other projects, people like Catherine Coley and Stefan Thomas. Yes. I mean, yeah, that's fantastic. I think another part also is that we are a Silicon Valley company and um, it's hard to retain people who like to join at the sort of early startup phase. It's hard to keep them through to the phase where the company becomes more mature. It's like as a company, we're very yeah, different. That makes sense. 
That makes so there aren't many people who would like to work at like, uh, you know, what Ripple was in the early days who would also like to work at what Ripple is now. And I have to, I like, be, I'll be honest for myself, like I prefer to be at an earlier stage company. Like I prefer to be working on companies that can sort of move a little bit more quickly and can innovate a little more, uh, more aggressively because part of the problem is it's hard to innovate aggressively when you have a lot of customers. Yeah, because, you know, you know, you have to look out for them now. Uh, tell me an untold story. Okay, I'm gonna tell I'm gonna tell you one that I think will help a lot of people to understand something that I think is widely misunderstood about the very very early days of the XRP ledger. So you have to understand that we built in things and threw them away all the time because we didn't know what was going to work and what wasn't. We didn't have a finalized roadmap and then we executed that roadmap. It wasn't like that at all. The very first idea that we had was sort of consensus without mining. And, but we didn't have an idea of like, what would the ledger look like? What would transactions look like? What would the functionality of the system be? Because we didn't know what it would be good for. So the idea was just consensus without mining. Like it was just yes. theory at that point? Yes. And in fact, in, in the very beginning, it was just, is it possible? Is it possible? Um, that was Jed McCaleb's original idea. Basically, could you develop a distributed agreement algorithm that didn't require proof of work and use that in place of proof of work to solve the double spend problem in a decentralized blockchain? And at the time, it's possible the answer was no. Like, we didn't know if that was possible. We didn't have a well-formed concept of, of how to do it. And I'll, I'll tell you the most surprising thing, while I'll detour a little bit on the story, just to tell you, like, from a technical standpoint, the most surprising thing is it turns out that that's a lot easier than you might initially think. You have to remember at the time, everybody thought that proof of work was Bitcoin's secret sauce, and many people still do today. But what we immediately realized was that all you need to do to solve the double spend problem is put transactions in a global order. Because if there's a double spend and we agree on which transaction comes first, we'll agree the first one's valid and the How second one's not. How do you agree on which one came first? So here's the idea. So you can do that because every transaction is a number. So you can just come up with a sorting rule to agree on which one comes first. So basically what you do is you just sort the transactions as numbers. But the only problem with that is suppose I see transactions, you know, C and D, and I agree that C comes first, but later someone else says, oh, what about transaction B? That came That's first. Problem. So the problem reduces to agreeing on what transactions to sort as a unit. And you only need to do one of two things with a transaction, either include it in this unit or bump it to the next unit. So you just need to consensus algorithm to agree for every transaction that you've seen in a particular time window, which ones will we execute in this unit and which ones will we defer to the next unit? That's literally it. It's that one thing. I don't understand how that works. Okay. Suppose we agree on the set of 10 transactions to execute now. We'll sort them in an agreed order. The order is an objective. You and I are both connected to the internet. What if there's a third person yes. who's not? If there's a third person who's not, and um, so what they would, if they're not connected to the internet, then they're not participating. It doesn't matter. People who aren't participating are irrelevant. We don't care about people who aren't participating. We only care about people who are participating. So it's a, it's a live network. It's a live response network. You have to be participating in the network. It's not like Bitcoin where you can come back a month later and sort of, and sort of uh, figure out what happened. There are ways that you can sync back in, but they're not part of the consensus mechanism. The consensus mechanism is agreed between the people who are online at a particular time. So what, what, what we realized that you had to do in that consensus process was essentially either accept a transaction in that round or bump it to the next round. It was this sort of one yeah. binary bit of uh, consensus. 
but I don't want to get too mired in the technical details because we could sort of talk about them forever. So we were building that consensus algorithm and, and, and um, we didn't have any of the other ideas down. And then once we discovered that we could get that to work, we set up three servers because three, like one um, doesn't prove that you have a consensus. One, one computer coming to consensus doesn't do anything. The problem with two is you constantly get into 50, 50 splits, which is ugly. So three is like a good, like minimum number to set up. And we would write code and push it out to those three servers like multiple times a day because nobody was relying on the system. And we would just, we were just like, it was probably the most productive time of my life. The, uh, the commit record is public. So you can actually go to GitHub and you can actually see, like you can track our development through this time period. So there is a historical record uh, open to the public uh, to allow them to watch everything that we were doing at that time period. And, and, and we had this rapid cycle where we would build code, deploy it, test it, run it, build code, deploy it, test it, run it. And of course, after a while, the cycle started to slow down as the code became more stable. And um, sometimes we would have to reset the ledger and sometimes we would keep the ledger. So like if we, if we made a code change that broke binary compatibility so that the code couldn't understand like the previous ledgers, we would start the ledger over. And if we didn't break binary compatibility, we wouldn't. Now, this is the amazing untold story part. At some point in that development, um, I think it was um, June 2012 or so, at some point in that development, we just didn't reset the ledger anymore. No. Oh. We just stopped. So how now, this is, the, this is the, because there was, no, there was no technical need to. There was no technical need to reset the ledger, and so we just stopped resetting it. So the weird thing is that like the ledger that is like now the live running XRP ledger in the world was not special when it was created or started. It was one of thousands and thousands of ledgers that, you know, Arthur, Jed, Chris Larson and I like created and destroyed. It, it, it just one time we're like, okay, there's no need to, and we, we didn't know it at the time. We thought, you know, it just so happened that we didn't make any changes that required a new, a new ledger. Isn't that, is the, so if you think about it, like the public XRP ledger chain that starts now, like was just one of thousands that we created and destroyed in this rapid chain of innovation. And there was just never a reason. Obviously now it would be completely impractical to restart it. And we couldn't do it because we'd have to convince like all yeah. the validator operators. Cause at that time there were, there were several people, myself and Jed who had, uh, and probably Arthur who had access to all three machines. And so they could have restarted the entire ledger or not. And, and then we went into sort of a beta period where we allowed people access to the ledger. And there was this thought that we might reset the ledger or we might not. And we just never did that. Uh, so here's another funny, here's another hilariously funny bit. If you fire up the XRP ledger software yourself today and you don't connect it to the network, it will create a new Genesis ledger. It'll create a new blockchain from scratch. That's what it does if you don't tell it to do anything else. And there will be a hundred billion XRP in the sort of Genesis account and you can transfer it. The password is well known. I think it's master password. So it's like a, it's like a, the password generates a private key. You just use I'm master. It's master. my own XRP right now. You can. And here's, so this is the hilarious part. When we opened that ledger to the public um, during the beta, there was still money in the master account. No one had emptied it. Oh. So you can just connect to the software and just take XRP just the same way the founders did, the same way Ripple, you know, the same way the founders did. You could just take money out of that Genesis account. And people did. And they didn't, nobody emptied it. They just took like what they needed to experiment. And those people still have XRP today that they just took out of that Genesis account. Oh, I kind of want to know if anyone's holding any XRP of the old ledger, like the previously un restarted like the one that's dead like you know you restarted these ledgers is there a, is there a ledger out there 
with account holders that someone could da- download an old version of the software and start playing with that ledger that was never restarted. Remember, someone restart an old ledger. We we made a lot of that data public um, because we had an incident after thirty two thousand ledgers where data got lost. There was a bug in the software that caused history to get lost, and we were we we could have restarted the ledger just for that, but it didn't require a ledger restart. And we just sort of assumed that there'll probably be a need for a ledger restart. And so we didn't do anything about it. And so there are some early ledgers that are lost. And we made all of the data we had at the time public in the hopes that people would be able to assist us in recovering the lost data. And some data was recovered. So there is like some of that data floating out there, but I don't know that there are any complete ledgers uh, from before that time, but there, there might be, I don't know if people, that data is still available. If anybody wants to, you know, download it and analyze it, and they can find trans. Like you can find transactions from previous ledger streams. So we didn't clear the transaction database always, and so you will find transactions from previous ledger streams. But I don't know that there's enough to assemble the uh, an entire ledger. The the last thing I wanted to talk to you about was o- over the past few years, I've kind of started to create this um, theory in my head that no cryptocurrency is decentralized, and that they're merely on a path to decentralization, like the Buddhist path to enlightenment. And when, when cryptocurrencies are created, companies are created, they fall on that spectrum somewhere, like, full, like more decentralized, more centralized in the middle. And then where they go ends up being like where the project wants to go. You have like some like uh, permission bank chains that say like we, you know, Hyperledger or whatever, we are towards, like you said, there's a certain uh, model, there's a certain... Um, there's a certain uh, market for that, for that product. Where do you think uh, Ripple falls on that spectrum? And do you feel like you're going in that decentralization direction? Are you happy with, with where you're going right now? Well, I'm sorry, I point out that Ripple is a Silicon Valley company that's completely centralized. Well, that's why but, I uh, need to yeah, so differ- differentiate yeah. between the three in the beginning. I asked you to do that. Yes. I screw up yeah. too. Yeah, so Ripple, Ripple's a company. I mean, we have a CEO. I'm the CTO. Like, we have a traditional corporate infrastructure. We have customers and, all of, and so I call on. I all crypto Bitcoin, by the way, so I'm just as bad as, don't worry. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, Bitcoin, yeah. great. It's Charlie, we're trading Ethereum now. It's like, Bitcoin's awesome. <laughs> so the XRP ledger... Um, Speaking speaking for the way I see it, I mean, obviously, I, I don't presume that I can I can speak for Ripple as like a spokesperson of the company. I can't really speak for the XRP ledger, just like nobody can really speak for Bitcoin. Um, but I I perceive one of the key values as the censorship resistance, and I think it's censorship. So when you talk about decentralization, I think it's important to think about um, what do you care about? What is it that you don't want to happen or that you do want to happen, rather than just like using it as a magic word? And and and, and what I what I think is that so there are other aspects of decentralization that people can be concerned about. Like, for example, some, someone could be really concerned about the sort of fairness of the initial distribution. They could say, that's the be-all, end-all of decentralization to me. And if they feel that way, then they're not going to agree with the rest of my answer. So what I think is like the be-all, end-all, or the, we're not really, but you know, the important point is the, cent- the, the censorship resistance. Because if you're going to use XRP for payment, um, you're probably just going to have to like buy it or acquire it somehow, or someone else will deliver it to you for fair value. You're going to, right. And then you're going to hold on to it and you're going to, maybe you'll get paid in XRP in some future world, or maybe, you know, you'll store your, or you'll just convert into XRP and then you'll make institutional payments that way. Or like, like MoneyGram is using XRP as an intermediary asset for remittance. You don't care about the distribution, but what you do care about is censorship resistance because you're not going to run the world. 
You're not going to be the person who gets to run the system. If, it, if the system has censorship, assume the censorship is going to be hostile to you because why, why like, because it's going to be hostile to someone. Yeah. And if you want a system that everyone can use, it's going to have to be censorship resistant. And so what we built is a system that has the, the maximum censorship resistance that we thought we could possibly give it. And the crux of how we got that censorship resistance is the only two positions you can, you keep. So first of all, there's no way in on the XRP letter to say this transaction is valid or this transaction is invalid. There's no point. Everybody knows if a transaction is valid or not. There's no reason I would need to tell you, just like in Bitcoin, I don't need to tell you a transaction is valid or invalid. You know, you check it yourself. Like, isn't it, I might not relay it because it's invalid, or I might choose to like accept a block myself that has it because it's valid, but I can't tell you a transaction is valid or invalid. In the XRP ledger, the two positions that you can take with a transaction is execute it now or execute it next round. Like, that's it. That's the alpha and omega. There's no way to say, please don't execute this valid transaction. Why would we give you a way to say, please don't execute this valid transaction? There'd be no yeah, reason. There's no sense. reason for that. Right. And so we built censorship resistance as like the most, what we thought was like the key attribute. And we designed a system that we think for practical purposes is, is, is like, it can't be censored. How, I mean, it'd be how, extremely how difficult. Someone, so with Bitcoin, you know how you can do the 51% attack. Is there, how would someone, because like you said, your, your best, is your weakest link. How would someone, you know, do a, a, tr a double spend transaction on the XRP ledger? Are there mechanisms to prevent that? Yes. So what you would have to do is you would have to convince people to run software that enabled you to do those things. Now, how would you do that as a practical matter? So it's not impossible. So Wait. like if I asked the same question, like how would you get there to be 50 million Bitcoin instead of 21 million? You'd have to get other people to run software, right? You can't just do it yourself. You have to convince other people to run that software that allows that. And, and that's not necessarily impossible. So for example, if all of the miners switched more hash power to it, they said, look, we're going to double spend on the, the Bitcoin blockchain unless you guys run this other chain that has these more, but that could pressure people as a practical matter. Is it likely? I mean, it's obviously, it's a fantastic argument. It almost but, happened. The bluff right. was called back in 2016 or whatever it was. So that's the kind of thing you would have to do. You would have to persuade people to run different software. Now, how would you persuade them? So in the case of Bitcoin, you'd probably persuade them by threatening a double spend attack. Obviously, that's not how you would do it on the XRP ledger. On the XRP ledger, the way you would probably persuade them to run a different ledger is one of two ways. So one would be greater economic impact. So if you get like all the exchanges to support your chain instead of that chain, but why would the exchanges support a chain that has censorship? Like they might, but that seems pretty improbable. The other way to do it would be to attack the existing chain. And the way you would do that is by, um, by getting its validators knocked off the network or something so that that, net, that chain couldn't continue to make forward progress because it was, a t it was like attacked by denial of service attacks. But the reason that's so difficult is, bec uh, is because the community can simply change the validators. If you choose validators badly, the chain will halt. So like if, if I choose a certain set of validators and they're attacked, then my chain will halt. And so if um, the community can react by changing validators, it's roughly equivalent in Bitcoin to changing the mining algorithm. So if someone did a double spend attack on Bitcoin and Bitcoin was going to fail and be broken, what you could do is change the mining algorithm because your attacker has ASICs that yeah. do the Bitcoin mining. If you change the mining, it's incredibly disruptive, obviously. You screw over the honest miners. It's obviously... The miners threaten to leave and then node runners threaten to change them. You know, people running the nodes just decide to change the mining algorithm. Developers and the node runners change it. That would be a crazy... 
Exactly. And, and, that. and that would be, those are the types of ways that you could get censorship into, into the XRP ledger, those same types of attacks. Now, so the question becomes like, for, as a practical matter, how likely are they? Now, here's the argument that they're unlikely, and this applies to, every, to, to Bitcoin as well. If the value proposition is censorship resistance, or at least that's part of the value proposition, you don't have to think it's the whole thing, but if that's a significant part of the value proposition, the stakeholders in a system are not likely to destroy its value proposition, right? Yeah. Like, the people who care about Bitcoin are not going to want double spends. They're not going to want um, censorship because that's the value proposition. So that's sort of the practical argument that unless, like as a practical matter. Unless what do you value more? Do you value consensus or immutability more? Because do you remember with the DAO, uh, it was it was chosen consensus over immutability, right? Like what if everyone said, yeah. we do want the ability to double spend? Like what if everyone does? And then it changes to a, and it would be stupid, but a blockchain can now double spend. You could argue that that's, Bitcoin is functioning the way it should. Yeah, that's true. And that's one of the interesting things about these. So this is the downside of decentralization. The, one of the upsides of centralization is you can sue a bank. If a bank does violates a con, you can have a contract with the bank. And if they violate it, you can sue them. You cannot have a contract with Bitcoin. You cannot sue Bitcoin. If the rules of Bitcoin change in ways that harm you, there is nothing you can do. Now, the sort of ecosystem has to agree to that change of rules. It's not going to happen unless like that. So you're ultimately, it's very democratic because there is no coercive force that can sort of force people to accept anything but what they agree. So yeah, you. I can I promise you that the XRP ledger will function the same next year as it functions today? No, I don't. If I if if I ran it right, I could contractually agree to it. Now, of course, governments could press but on me whether that's a good important. agreement or not. But yeah, that's working. That's the whole point of a cryptocurrency is you have. Yeah millions of people using this thing and deciding in real time what they want this thing to be. Exactly. And they have diverse interests, right? Some of them are in the US, some of them are in the EU, some of them are in Australia, some of them might be in, you know, in India or China or Russia. And so they have all of these diverse interests. And so that kind of prevents the system from being perverted against any particular interest. That's the check. And it, it's, it's odd. It's, it's odd. No, no previous system has ever run quite that way. Although I would say the internet sort of does run that way, right? Like if you think about the uh, administration of IP addresses on the internet, that's been pretty heavily biased in favor of the United States, let's be honest, for a long time because the United States got there first. But could the other countries say we're going to like impose our own IP address scheme on the internet and it's not going to be more fair? Sure, but that would be so disruptive that they tolerate a system that like has this built-in, you know, Bitcoin favors early miners. Are we uh, uh, but are, are they going to rip? Is, are new people going to rip the system up to disadvantage the early miners? No, because they value stability over correcting a sort of ancient perceived injustice. Yes, exactly. And I think it's the same thing. Uh, part of the value proposition of public blockchains is their immutability. Now, in the Dow case, they made a decision to sacrifice that for what they perceived as a greater good. And a lot of people at the time argued that like this would open the door to like the Ethereum blockchain, like having no immutability, and the Ethereum Classic split off because of it. It hasn't. But, um, but we you know, haven't, we haven't had an opportunity. Well, the, I'm wrong. So yeah. I was going to say we have an opportunity, but there, there have been subsequent issues with the issues, but hacks. The parity wallet issue, for yeah. example, and, where people and, did say, hey, we established a precedent that if like a screw up hurts people, why are you helping them and not us? And that was very, that was uh, yeah. <laughs> very controversial. Well, I don't know if you realize, but um, it was funny when the SEC, so the SEC came out like, or not, I don't know if they came out or they said something, but they were like, I don't know if it was, sorry, I don't know if it was the commissioner saying this at a speech or if it was actually policy, but he said something like, yeah, the SEC gives projects like three years to be 
decentralized. I don't know if you'd heard about this, you know. And so I'm saying to myself, did, that, did no one tweeted like <laughs> basically the SEC literally just said that that projects have three years to become decentralized. Like that's a big thing for them to say that, but not because of like. I guess what I'm trying to say is like it's kind of like um, kind of conceited that the U.S. government can say like, yeah, this Bitcoin thing is your thing, but three years you get. You get three years to become fully decentralized or else we're going after you. So like one could argue that because Ethereum was in the first three years of its existence, it doesn't really matter that, you know, shit broke because how much shit broke with Bitcoin in its first three years of existence? I mean, oh, yeah. Bitcoin forked, Satoshi broke Bitcoin twice. <laughs> shit went, no one realizes that things were going crazy back in those years. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I, I think. Sorry, sorry, Satoshi, not twice. <laughs> um, but David, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really appreciate it because we could sit here and um, talk for hours. And oh, my pleasure. It's been a blast, Charlie. Great catching up. And um, I'm coming out. I love your Bitcoin logo around. there the whole time. What? True to your true to your maximalist roots, you've had that Bitcoin logo lit up oh, there. I'm the whole time. Out. There you go. <laughs> I know it's fine. Hey, I, we, I, I, I like Bitcoin as much. I like Bitcoin as much as anyone. I was an early adopter of it. Did well for me financially. I can't, you know, I can't complain. I love yeah. the technology. It's what brought me into the industry. But I, I didn't think that that was the end of innovation. And that's that's okay. So that's what something that let's end off on that for everyone. It's okay to to love Bitcoin and to I'm getting a UPS package. It's okay. <laughs> you can just leave it right there. Thank you. It's okay to love Bitcoin and to agree that it's not the end of the innovation cycle. And I think that's something that a lot of maximalists grapple with is they believe that it is the end all be all. And it's not really like, it's just not, not that it's not fair. It just doesn't make sense. Like as human beings that we can just like slap a label and say, this is it. Like, I'm so committed. I am God. Like, what are you, do you know everything? Do you know everything about everything that you can just say? So I think, but if I didn't go to prison, I wouldn't be as open-minded as I am today. So that's another thing. And I should would never wish that on anyone else. But anyways, thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. I appreciate your open-mindedness, Charlie. This has been a lot of fun and I'm glad to have the chance to tell some uh, formerly untold stories. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. New episodes of Untold Stories are released every Tuesday and Thursday at 7 a.m. EST on untoldstories.com, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Untold Stories is produced by Jason Yanowitz, Michael E. Polito, Reed Hannaford, and Riley Silbert of Blockworks Group. Our account executives are Gina DeFelice and Julie Muroff. Our content is written by Kathy Zolo, Ronnie Tishner, and Scott Offord. Special thanks to Wayne Dallaire from Jump Dog Audio Productions. And of course, I'm your host, Charlie Shrem. You can follow me on Twitter, at Charlie Shrem, to continue the conversation. Send me some messages, feedback, or anything you want to say. And remember, please give some love to my sponsors, and I'll see you next week. Remember, strength in numbers. And information is power.